0: If you have a Bible, open it up to Galatians. We're starting our new series in Galatians called Centered, Galatians chapter 1. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, we'll be on page 972 in the Black Bibles. You'll see some scattered around under the chair, so you can grab one there and follow along with us. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 today. And we're starting this new series, uh, which I'm really excited about because uh, this study through Galatians is, Galatians is the book that we studied Uh, To prepare to plant Grace Bible Church um, eight and a half years ago. So uh, when we were just a twinkle in Temple Bible Church's eye, uh, we had a core group of about 30 people gathering in a Sunday school class and we were studying Galatians together. Martin Luther said that uh, this gospel of grace is the central doctrine that we should teach and learn. And then he also added and beat into our heads continually. Uh, So that's what we're going to try to do. Hopefully it won't be painful, but we are gonna try to beat this truth into our heads that God really does love us in Jesus. Are we sinners? Yes, we're we're sinners. We've strayed. We've drifted from God. We've done things we know we shouldn't do. uh, And God came after us in Christ. He placed our sins on Christ on the cross. So Christ took our place. He took away our sins and he rose from the dead, promising us life. And Galatians shows us that this is central, this is important, this uh, is the, the middle of everything. We, we as people try to base our lives, try to center our lives on other things. We try to center our lives on success at work or having uh, just the family we dreamed of or the right boyfriend or girlfriend or that next high, whatever it might be. And the scriptures call us back to Jesus. He's, he's the one we should center our lives around And that's what we're going to be beating into our heads here in Galatians. So we're excited about this series. If you'll follow along with me. Um, Actually, before we do that, I just wanted to mention as well, during this series, we're going to be doing handouts. So you'll see these little half-page white inserts. there at the front tables and the back tables. Uh, We know a lot of you are already involved in community, growing in the scriptures with other people in a class or small group here. But if you're not, we'd encourage you to grab one of these. Uh, and start working through these discussion questions based on what we're studying here in church. We have some follow-up to what we'll study uh, the day of, and then also looking forward to the next uh, scriptures as well to help you go deeper uh, in Galatians. So uh, do this with your family, or just grab a a brother or sister in Christ, uh, grab someone of the same gender and say, hey, let's, let's have coffee together, let's pray for each other, let's work through Galatians together. So we encourage you to take advantage of this. I want everybody to grab one of these on the way out the door. All right, let's read Galatians one one through five. It says Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins according uh, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our Father, God, our, God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. All right, pray for my mouth, I'm getting tripped up. I'm gonna pray for us that God would help us to learn today, let's pray. God, we thank you that you love us, we thank you for your grace, we thank you that in our weakness, uh, you are strong. And we thank you for teaching us from your word, we pray that you would open our eyes and our, our ears, allow our hearts to be receptive, to be good soil, to receive your word. God, we want you to change us. We want you to make us more like Jesus, and we thank you for him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever been in a situation where uh, maybe you had vertigo, dizziness, and you kind of lost your balance? You kind of lost your center a little bit? Anybody ever experienced that before? I have vertigo sometimes when I get sick. Um, Or maybe you've been in a storm and you lost your sense of direction, right? Um, For this series art, Centered, we've got a compass there kind of embedded in the art. And the idea is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the thing that's going to be our center, that's going to direct us so we know which way is up, so we know which way to go, so we know how to move forward. I had the opportunity years ago to be invited uh, by an Apache helicopter pilot to do some training to fly an Apache helicopter, so I got to um, work in a simulator for two hours, um, and if you don't know, a simulator is basically like a, a real cockpit, it's like a real Apache helicopter cockpit, but then uh, it's got like, almost like a video game display, right, so you can simulate flying it, so they didn't let me fly in a real helicopter. Um, but I was, I was training to fly it for about two hours, I sh- or I should say training to crash it for about two hours, um, and, and after that time, you know, the seat shakes and everything, and the visuals are, are moving around. So you, you feel like you're really moving, right? You feel like you're really flying. And so um, after a while, I, I didn't know where my center was anymore, right? Like I, I literally thought I was going to throw up because I was sick uh, from being bounced around and, and kind of being disoriented. Um, and I use that illustration to remind you of probably how you feel on a regular basis when the thing that you're counting on in life has failed you and your center is gone. You, you've lost your, your balance. You've lost your direction. Maybe you were counting on this relationship to come through for you and it's blown up. And so you're, you're questioning, which, which way is up? How, how do I move forward? Maybe you're counting on this job to be the thing that would, would set things right in your family, in your life. Maybe you were counting on respect from other people or, or money. Uh, I don't know what it is for you, but we've all experienced that as human beings. We've experienced these moments where our, our center is gone, where we feel sick to our stomach and we don't know which way is up. And what I want to appeal to you is that we can have hope because Jesus can be our center. Because this good news, this gospel, this good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us can be our center. And we're gonna see that again and again in Galatians. The challenge of Galatians is that neither sin nor religious righteousness is a substitute for Jesus as our substitute, as our life, as the one who dies uh, for our sins to give us life. And we have to recognize that Galatians, it was written particularly to people who are drifting away from the purity of just Jesus to being better, more religious Jews. And what Paul says repeatedly is, you know what, being more religious is, is not gonna fix your life. Only Jesus can do that. And so we as religious people here in a religious place need to recognize that that's the great temptation for us is to be like the Galatians and be lured away to deeper, stronger uh, more impressive religion, and drift away from Jesus himself. And so that's what Paul's gonna be hammering away out in this book of Galatians, and we'll just kind of introduce some of the themes today as we begin to get into it. The first thing that we see is this message of Jesus, this gospel, this good news of Jesus is centered on God's authority. And so we have an introduction to this letter that's uh, very similar to the introduction to other letters that Paul has written in the Bible, but there's a little small difference here. So read verses one and two. So Galatians one, one and two, the message is centered on God's authority. Paul, an apostle, and then this is what's different, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So Paul always writes something like, you know, this letter's from Paul, the way they would write their letters back then, they'd always say who it's from, a up front at the, at the top of the letter, right? When we write letters, any of you have ever, ever written a real letter and not just an email? Raise your hand if you've written a <laughs> real letter. Okay, most of you still have. Okay, I didn't know if that was still happening in our culture. So, so when you write a real letter, uh, you sign it at, at the end, right? And that's the typical way we do letters, but in their culture, they would sign it at the beginning. They would say, from the beginning, this is who it's from. It's from Paul. So we see that in all of Paul's letters. So that's normal. Paul, an apostle, that's normal. An apostle literally means sent one uh, so this is an authoritative official sent one. So Paul's saying, I'm one of the ones that God has sent out. But he, he re-emphasizes this. This is what's different is he, he has this little phrase that he doesn't have in any of the other letters. that says, not from men nor through man. So he's making clear here that his authority doesn't rest on some, uh, some group, some particular church, some bishop, some rabbi, but it rests on God himself. He says, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then he goes on, reinforcing this this God authority of Jesus and God the Father by saying, who raised him from the dead, right? So this wasn't Jesus Christ, who wasn't just a man, who was one with God himself, who God proved to be God himself by raising him from the dead, that's very central to our understanding of who Jesus was, that as the Son of God, he was proven to be authoritative by being resurrected. That's how we know we can trust him. Paul even goes so far as to say in 1 Corinthians 15, just throw this all away if, if he didn't rise from the dead, this is ridiculous. So as he rose from the dead, that proves he's the Son of God, that proves that he is one with God the Father, that proves that he is the authoritative uh, spokesperson of God himself. And so an apostle, the word sometimes can be used in a general sense of just someone that's sent out as a messenger or a missionary. But for the most part in the New Testament, it's speaking of the small group of official messengers, and then their official word of God is what we have now contained in the New Testament scriptures. That the New Testament scriptures are the words of the apostles. So when we're looking for that same authority today, we don't look for it in a, in a man sent from Jesus we look for it in the words of these men that were sent from Jesus, from these apostles. We have their words contained here in the Bible. It's our authority. The doctrine is sometimes called sola scriptura, which means scripture alone is is the final arbiter. It's like the Supreme Court. It's like the final one that will weigh every other word. It doesn't mean we don't listen to other things, right? We might listen to other teachers. We might learn from what we see in creation, but this becomes the final grid that we filter everything with. It becomes how we sift and understand what is true, and it has this authority. Another interesting thing about this word, apostle is an official messenger, not from men, not through men, but from God, this authority of God himself. That word, in in its common usage in the day, was, was used for imperial cargo. So if a ship came from the emperor, it would have a certificate saying, this is for real from the emperor, and that was called an apostle. So that was a a certification that it was on official business, that it was emperor's business. So the word even in just kind of everyday usage had that connotation, had that ring in people's mind of this is authoritative, this is for real. I want to give you an illustration of how this works out in everyday life. Um, When you have uh, children, uh, sometimes you might have, maybe you might have one child that bosses the other child around. Has that ever happened to any of you? Maybe when you were children, right? You had an older brother or sister that tried to tell you what to do. Now, if they told you to do something just because they were being bossy, you have some reasonable right to resist as a child, right? But if they say, mom said, that's a different story, right? If they're speaking for mom and dad, if they say, mom said it's time to come in, then mom's probably gonna be frustrated if they don't come in. If they're just out there bossing people around, they don't necessarily have to listen, right? There's There's a distinction there between authority. It might be the same person speaking but different levels of authority. And so that's what Paul's establishing at the very beginning. Paul's saying, I, I didn't come from some group of guys. I didn't go and get trained at a certain school and get taught this special message. It was, it was from Jesus himself. If you don't know the story, you should read the story in Acts, the book of Acts. We see Paul literally uh, getting blinded and knocked on the ground by Jesus. It was a very dramatic call and sending by Jesus. Paul says, I got the message from Jesus. I didn't didn't get it from any particular group or brand or sect or division or faction. I got it from Jesus. So this is an authoritative message. Now, two ways I want us to apply this. One is as listeners, we need to apply uh, the importance, the centrality of the authority of God's word by sifting what we hear. I, I want you to evaluate what I say based on the scriptures, so see, our basic posture here is we're going to teach what the Bible says, but then we want you to open your Bible and evaluate it. Like the Bereans, the, the Bible talks about the Bereans being these people that were noble because they listened to what Paul said, and then they evaluated it, and they tested it in the scriptures to see if what he was saying lined up. And that's what we're all called on to do. It's not like you, you check your responsibility at the door and you say, well, I'm sitting and listening, so I don't have to think about it. No, you, you have to think about it. That that keeps our community healthy. When you evaluate what I'm saying and when you look at it and you say, does that line up with what the authoritative word says? The scriptures itself, that, that keeps our body healthy, that keeps the community healthy so I'm not saying crazy stuff, right? Hold me accountable, hold our other teachers accountable, hold the other books that you read out in the community, hold those things accountable by sifting them according to the authority of God's word. Uh, The other thing, the other side of that is we want to think as speakers, right? So we're listeners sometimes, and as listeners, we want to sift it and say, does this line up with God's word? But also as speakers, we want to make sure we're speaking God's word and not just a lot of opinions. You need to be very careful when you have an opinion or have uh, an impression maybe that God gave you or maybe uh, spicy food gave you, whatever it might be, that you say, well, I'm not sure, I kind of feel this way, I think this way. You know, make sure there's a distinction there. What we want to stick to is the authority of God's word, right? When you're challenging a brother and sister, there's a difference between saying, hey, you definitely shouldn't leave your wife, right? Because that's black and white and it's authoritative in the Bible. But saying like, I feel like maybe you're doing this thing that may not be a good, you know, I mean, there's, there's two categories of ways to challenge each other. And we need to make sure we sift those out as well. And, and when we're speaking black and white, we want to make sure it really is an issue that's black and white. Hey, should I murder this guy? No, I can speak authoritatively. The scripture says no. I know God's word on that for you, right? Um, should I move to Alaska or to Apika? Well I'm, I'm not sure. Here, let's evaluate, you know, let's think about it. Let's pray. We're not really sure. There's some freedom there. But when it comes to black and white issues, we can speak authoritatively and, and we want to speak uh, God's word. I also want to remind you, what's the core? What's the center? of this authoritative word? Well, the center is Jesus himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Jesus is the the fruition of everything we've been waiting for. And so Paul says, I I knew nothing but Christ and Christ crucified among you. Does that mean Paul didn't talk about um, being nice to your spouse or being good to your children or being honest in your business dealings? No, he talked about all that stuff too but he talked about all of it connected to the center, to the authority of the central message, which is Jesus himself. So that's why Paul, who talked about everything, could say, I talked about nothing but Jesus and him crucified. Do you see that? Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 2.2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the center that takes care of everything else. That's the center of this authoritative message. The next thing we see is that this message, this truth about Jesus is centered on God's work rather than our work. It's not what we've done, it's what God has done. There's an important contrast there, and so look at verses three and four. Verses three and four, he says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, real quickly, this is kind of interesting culturally because what Paul has done is he's taken the common Greek greeting and the common Hebrew greeting and he mashes them together when he says, grace and peace. So the common Greek greeting would be kairi, which is uh, literally rejoice, but it's a word that's similar to the word for grace, right? So the word for grace is charis, the word for rejoice is kairi. And so they would have this greeting that was uh, kairi. And Paul's grabbing that, twisting it, and, and making it into grace, right? Even better than rejoice, grace from God our Father. And then he adds the Hebrew greeting as well, which was peace or shalom. And so he puts those two things together. What does grace mean? Grace is the favor that God gives to us. Grace means God gives us something we don't deserve. Grace means God gives us something we couldn't earn. Grace means God did something that we couldn't accomplish by our own work, but God did the work for us. And then peace, what does peace mean? Well, at a very concrete level, it means reconciliation between two people who are not in agreement with each other. And, and that's, that's kind of the simple, like, these two people are fighting, and hey, now everything's okay. They're reconciled. That's, that's peace. In a broader sense, peace means everything being the way it's supposed to be. Peace means that future, that heavenly reality of a new creation, new heavens and new earth, where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more crying, where you don't have to hear these terrible stories of uh, kids picking on your kids. You don't have to uh, fight with each other anymore. We don't have to have these diseases ravaging our bodies. We don't have to struggle against all the brokenness in this world. We can finally live in a place where everything the, is the way it's supposed to be. I've, I've joked before that I, I feel those in moments like when I'm eating really good, fresh guacamole that my wife has made, right? Or um, when our kids were little, you'd have just those moments, those little, like maybe 30 seconds, even not a full moment where your kids were just happy and getting along perfectly, Right? <laughs> They're holding hands and everything. You know, it just looks like a a picture that you would frame and put on your wall. We all experience those moments of peace, of shalom, of the way things are supposed to be. Well, here in this phrase, it's a powerful phrase, very short and simple but powerful. Paul's saying grace, getting something we don't deserve, and peace, reconciliation, everything being the way it's supposed to be, both comes where? From God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So by God's work, Jesus reconciles us to the Father. Because of our sin, we know that uh, God's wrath is poured out against us, that we deserve judgment. But because of God's grace, we have peace and we're reconciled with the Father. Because of our sin, uh, we see God as angry with us. We know that we deserve judgment. We're scared, we're fearful, we're insecure. But because of grace, we have peace with him, we see him as a loving father who delights in us. I talked last week about how we can often uh, give mental assent in our brains that Christ's death forgives our sins, but we think of it as some sort of technical legal thing and we don't realize that Christ's death and resurrection also secures the love of the father. He delights in us. So it's, it's not true that he just forgives you but can't stand you. He forgives you and he loves you. He delights in you as his child, grace and peace to you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." He goes on in more detail in verse four, "Who gave himself for our sins, according, uh, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father." So that last phrase in verse four it says, "It's according to God's will, His desire. Again, picking up on that, He likes us. God wanted to do this, God wanted to save you. God doesn't begrudgingly save you. Oh, that person trusted Jesus. Now now they're in, and I don't want them in the family, but they're in, I guess I gotta take them. No, it was his will. He, He wanted to save us. That shows his posture towards us according to the will of our God and Father. And then the details are in the beginning of verse four, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. These are the mechanics of how it works. Throughout the Old Testament, there were sacrifices that had to be killed. Innocent blood was spilt by these animals to pay for sin. And that showed again and again that, that someone innocent had to take the place uh, of our sin. Someone innocent had to be sacrificed to, to pay for the sin. That the, Scales of justice, if you will, had to be righted. And when Jesus comes along, he shows us that he's not just this great leader, he's not just this great king, Messiah, anointed one we've been waiting for, but he's actually the sacrifice as well. He's also the sacrifice, he gave himself. So it says also in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, this is my gospel, it's of first importance, Christ died for our sins. For our sins is such an important phrase, it's just such an important part of how this all works. God is both merciful, he likes us, he loves us, he saves us, and he's just. Payment was made, there was a sacrifice. Jesus took our place. And so that's what we see here at the center of this gospel message. He gave himself for our sins, and what does that accomplish? It says to deliver us from the present evil age. If you're like me, you don't always feel delivered, do you? You don't always feel delivered from this present evil age because we still live here, right? And we turn on the news and it's still evil. There's still a lot of bad stuff happening, still a lot of wickedness, a lot of horrible things that frustrate us and make us angry. The message is that Christ's death accomplishes our rescue out of this present evil age. And so now we live in this evil age in hope of the future perfect age. And so in a sense, what the New Testament is teaching is that this present evil age still exists, but it's fading away. It's passing away. And the evidence that it's passing away is every time someone comes to trust in God through Jesus, every time someone in this present evil age comes to trust that God is really good and puts away our life of of evil and selfishness and sin. And as we do that, we're bringing that future age of everything being right of shalom, of peace, we're bringing that future age into the now. When we actually love someone else instead of just loving ourselves, we actually live sacrificially and serve someone else instead of just serving ourselves. When we actually choose to trust God and that what he says is right instead of just trusting our own desires, we're bringing that future age into the present. And so there's a sense that we have now been delivered, rescued from this present evil age because it doesn't have power over us any longer, because as we trust and obey Jesus, we're showing that we're citizens of that future age. So that future age has broken in to the present age, and that's how we are supposed to live. God has done this work for us. The message is centered on this reality that it's God's work, what he did for us out of his will and pleasure, through Jesus' death and resurrection, it's God's work. I have a picture here to illustrate this idea, a grandpa, uh, with his granddaughter riding a little bicycle built for two. Um, and, and her legs, you can see her legs are pretty short. I think grandpa is doing most of the work. I think grandpa is doing most of the work powering this bicycle made for two. And that's a picture of what it looks like for us to belong to God. God's done the work to save us. Does that mean we're passive and we don't do anything? No, we're, we're working. We're pedaling our little feet as fast as we can but we know that God's really the one powering the machine. God's really the one driving it. Now he invites us into his work. He invites us to do what he does, to live sacrificially for others. So here it said that God had this will to save and love us, to show us grace and peace, to deliver us from this present evil age, to sacrifice himself for us. He's done all of that, and when we really catch hold of that, when that's really, as Luther would say, beaten into our brain, it goes down deep into the center of our soul, we begin living that way for other people. We begin living where we give ourselves for other people. We begin living where we actually love other people. What Paul will talk about at the end of this book, Galatians in chapter five, is then the fruit of the spirit. It begins to work itself out. We actually love people. We actually have joy. We actually make this world better instead of making it worse. We live in this present evil age, and, and we can either make it more evil, or we can bring the future into the now because of the hope we have in Jesus, because of the work that he's accomplished for us. The, the last point that we see is that this message, this Jesus, is, this message is centered on God's glory. It's about God's glory, and glory really just means kind of greatness, the, the awe, the wonder of how awesome God is, and so we see in verse five that it's God's glory that's at the center of what he's done. So it was according to the will of our God and Father. We saw that at the end of verse four. And then now in verse five, he says, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. Uh, if you don't know the word amen is just a Hebrew word. It means so be it or may it be true. Uh, it's like, yeah, that's right. And he's saying God gets all the glory. God gets the glory forever and ever. It's all about God. It's all about magnifying how big he is, how great is. He is, and so it's a good way to evaluate our own life and our own motives. Is is my motive to make myself look better? Sadly, o- often it is. But if I rest completely in God's work and God's authority, then I can begin to have different motives. Bec- I can begin to be more concerned about making God look better. You've all heard the illustration about the moon, right? You you know. The moon doesn't have any light of its own. There's no electric lights up there. There's no fires burning on the moon that make it glow at night. The moon is merely reflecting the light of the sun. And God asks us to reflect his glory in this world. God asks us to show his light to those around us. So we can make the world a darker place. Or we can make the world a, a brighter place. We can make it better or we can make it worse. We can reflect him more or not reflect Him. We're made in God's image. That's our purpose as people, as humans, to show people what God is like, to reflect His character, His love, His grace. Do you reflect Him? We're called on to reflect Him on our good days and on our bad days. On our good days, we're called on to recognize that our strength is something that God has provided. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he, he says, I worked harder than all the rest of them, but it wasn't me, it was God's grace at work in me. And so if you have strengths, if you have gifts, those are God's, those aren't yours. God's given those to you as a stewardship. And the purpose of those gifts is to show people how generous God is, to show them his glory. And you know what else? If you have weaknesses, if you have weaknesses, that's their purpose as well. So it's kind of like a win-win deal, right? Because on some days, we're puffed up because we think we're so awesome. On, on other days, we're feeling sorry for ourselves because we, we think we're so terrible. Um, it shouldn't be about us either way. It shouldn't be about us. It should be about God. It should be about reflecting God's glory. Paul says that in his weakness, God, uh, God's strength is displayed. He says, God told him, my power is made perfect in you. And so when we're weak, when we struggle, I I often just, I'm frustrated. I'm I'm mad at God because God, I want to be strong and awesome and I never want to struggle. I never want to be weak. I want to be good at everything. I want to always make the right decision. I always want to look good to everybody else. But but God has said those opportunities, which, which aren't fun, are actually opportunities for me to depend more on Jesus. They're opportunities for me to trust him more, for me to allow his strength to be displayed through my weakness. So does that mean we pursue weakness? Does that mean we throw away our gifts? No, that just means they're, they're going to come and when they come, we need to recognize them as opportunities to depend on his strength. We need to recognize those as, as chances for us to display his glory in our weakness. Well, as we wrap up and look forward to everything that we're gonna learn in, in Galatians, I, I'm excited and I'm, I'm praying for us as a community because I, I think what this is gonna do is just gonna teach us at a deeper level, uh, how to trust in Jesus as the center of everything when, when life is a storm, right? Because life is crazy, but we are all affected in different ways by the storm that is this world. And as I was thinking about uh, this whole concept of, of hanging on to Jesus in the middle of the storm, I was remembering this movie, Twister. Have y'all ever seen the movie Twister? It came out in the 90s. It's about storm chasers and tornadoes. So if you're new to the area, you might wanna watch it, you know, to learn about our weather patterns. Um, but in this movie, there's really this you know, bizarre scene at the end of the movie, which I, I don't think is very realistic. But the end of the movie, they're down at the bottom of this house, they're at the center of the house, and while the storm is blowing away, everything else around them ripping the house off of them, they're holding on to these pipes. And, and it's so over the top, they're like holding on and their legs are being sucked up into the tornado. I mean, it's just, it's nuts. Uh, and they're holding on for dear life and they've, they've found this one part of the house that's solid, that's centering them so they won't be whisked away in the storm. And I thought, that's a great story of how we hold on to these gospel truths, how we hold on to, to Jesus and, and who he is. But, but I, wanna, I wanna take that picture for you and take it a step further because really what, what Jesus tells us is that it's even better than that because you know some of us don't have a very strong grip I mean, I'm, I'm getting old and uh, I don't know if I could hold on in a tornado to those pipes the way they did in the movie. I don't know that anyone ever in the history of the world has held on <laughs> fighting a tornado. And so I find comfort in what Jesus said in John 10:28. He says, he's holding on to us. Jesus is holding on to us. In John 10:28, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is holding on to you and, and everything else is, is blowing around, everything else is going crazy. Jesus is holding on to you. And I mean, we sang this in that song, oh love that will not let me go. That's our hope. My hope isn't in how strong my grip is. My hope is in Jesus' grip. He has a hold on me. That's what we're going to learn this year as we study Galatians together. We're going to look at how it applies to everything in our life. My prayer is that we would be transformed by it, that it would make us different. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you hold on to us. Thank you that you gave yourself for us. We thank you that you proved that we can trust you through your death and resurrection. God, I pray that you would transform us as a community, that we would be centered on you and on the good news of your gospel. Jesus for us. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.